Hey there, friends from Hope Covenant and podcast listeners. Had some technical difficulties on Sunday, so I'm going to try to give this a run here. I'm going to pretend that you guys are all in the room, and uh, you just pretend that uh, yeah, that this doesn't sound weird with me speaking to nobody but my computer. Um, the good news is uh, there was no need for a laugh track because uh, you know, like well, like normal, no one no one laughs, so. All right, off we go. Uh, as we get into this, I just want to let you guys know that on Wednesday nights, we have launched Discover Groups, which start this coming Wednesday. And so hope you can be there for that. Hope you'll be a part of our Discover Groups, where we will kind of recap a little bit of the theme from Sunday, and then we'll unpack it in discussion and in small groups. So hope you can be there. It'll be our next six Wednesday nights, starting on the 9th. Of January. So, um, what we're going to be studying the next six weeks, this is kind of a new deal for me. I've never done a book series before where we talk about a book that's out there. And I really kind of flinch at doing something like that normally because it tends to be books that are kind of the hottest, latest thing. But this book, The Cure, was written by a friend of mine, a mentor, John Lynch, who has spoken at Open Door Fellowship for 30-some years up in Phoenix until recently. And John spoke at Hope uh, back in November. John's been a mentor for a long time. And, and this book, um, actually the predecessor to this book, kind of the first version of it, received really high praise from a lot of well-respected people, including Dallas Willard who is a brilliant uh, writer and Christian thinker who passed away in the last couple of years. But, but Dallas had said about the first version of this book that it is the single most, uh, uh, the, what do you say, the best book on practical theology that he'd ever, ever seen. So that's pretty high praise from a guy like that. And that is just part of why we are looking at this book because what this book is going to talk about and the themes that I think are important for us to look at are central to who we are at Hope. In fact, I've wanted to share some of these themes and some of these important ideas and teachings ever since I started temp as a temporary person back uh, almost a year and a half ago at Hope. And I think now is the time for us. And, and some of the questions that we're going to look at, some of the themes um, on grace are going to go deeper. Like what does it mean for us to really, really believe what scripture says about grace and how that impacts our life as followers of Jesus. What's it mean to not just be saved by grace, but for us to live in the grace of God? Um, and what about uh, who God declares us to be as, as a result of what Jesus did for us? That we're, that we're saints, not sinners, that we are his children. And how does that impact our life in ways that might be easy for us to miss, but are really crucial for us to understand? So, that is a big reason that we're going to look at The Cure as a book, and we're going to look at it as a, as a church together, and not just spend Sunday morning sermons on it, but wow, Wednesday night discover groups for the next six weeks. Um, and really, the bottom line for me is, I think these are important pieces for us as a people of hope covenant to look at, because... It's going to help us look at God's love for us. Um, it's going to help us understand better maybe some of our struggles with sin. Uh, it's going to understand and unpack. It's going to help us to understand and unpack some of the shame that drives many of us. Um, and it's also going to help us get a picture of what it looks like for our church at Hope Covenant to be a place where people can experience 
the love and grace of Jesus. So I'm really excited for this book. And um, when I talk about the things that I just mentioned there, uh, some of those themes, you know, that might seem like kind of Christian basic 101 type stuff for folks. Like, hey, you know, don't we already know all that stuff already? You know, that we're saved by God's grace and Jesus loves us unconditionally. Well, yeah, I think we do most of the time. And, and in truth, I wish that those were really just basic Christianity 101 type things. But the truth is, I've really been surprised, maybe even shocked sometimes, at how little I've allowed the truth of God's grace to actually impact my own life and heart. And I've been learning about grace for, for decades now. And so many times I, 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 my heart goes out to people, um, both in our church and, and other folks that I know outside of our church, that, that they don't seem to live with that rock-solid settledness of who Jesus says they are and, and what the grace of God means for their life. So um, let me just start a little bit with my story. Uh, I, most of you know I grew up in a Christian household and great parents and the church I was raised in cared deeply about the things of God. But, but somewhere along the way, I picked up some ideas about God and about faith and what it means to be a Christian that weren't actually, well, <laughs> biblical. Uh, and some of these things that I learned, I, you know, some of them maybe came through a sermon or a bad teaching or bad theology. Uh, maybe some of them came that way. That's how I learned and picked them up. But mostly, I would say that it was a fairly subtle or even unsubtle theme that ran beneath the surface. And the theme um, that ran beneath the surface looked something like this. It sounded like, hey, Doug, you know what? Whew, you are fortunate. Doug, the grace of God saved you. You didn't deserve it at all. Which, by the way, that, that you know, there's truth in that. Um, but there was a lie that was tagged onto those things, and the lie sounded something like this. Yeah, yeah, Doug, you were saved by grace. But now you need to perform really well. You need to strive to show that you take God seriously. And from this point forward, you need to focus your energy on eliminating sin from your life so that God will not be disappointed in you, Doug. You need to live your life in a way that proves to God that you are worthy. So, so from this point forward, Doug, you need to strive. You need to try harder and show that you take this Christianity thing seriously. And so that's the way I lived. And when I'd get tired, or when I'd fail, which I did all the time, I'd hear this internal message, another lie from the enemy. And it was this. It sounded like this. Doug, <laughs> Doug, you are one small step from being a total disappointment and screw-up. You need to try harder. Don't you even care? After all Jesus has done for you, this is the best you can do. You'll be lucky, Doug, if you ever have a close relationship with God which is the thing I desired most. I wanted a close relationship with God. And so when I didn't feel close to God, it wasn't hard for me to kind of look around and try to find some areas of my life that would explain why I felt so far from God. Things like, wow, I guess I'm, I guess I'm just not holy enough. Um, of course he God can't stand to be around me. Like, I constantly struggle. I sin. I get angry, sarcastic, and hurtful to the people around me, and frankly, much, much worse than those things. So I would just beat myself up. I'd beat myself up with more resolve to do whatever it took to get my act together and stop disappointing God. I'd, um, I'd pray more. I'd, I'd read more scripture. 
Um, I'd start to fast. I'd do fasting. And by the way, uh, all those things, you know, prayer, scripture reading, fasting, spiritual disciplines, they are all good practices. But, but friends, let's be clear. We don't earn anything by doing them. God doesn't like us better or love us more when we engage in spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. That he, not at all. Um, but, but for me, you know, I do them all. I do all those things, and then I'd learn some more, hoping that this time I'd prove to God that I was serious, that I was grateful for all he had done, proving to him that I was sold out and radical, which was actually a song that our, that our youth group uh, would sing, sold out and radical. Um, I'll spare you the karaoke on that. Uh, we'll save that for another time. <clears throat> but, but, but part of living with this, you know, striving, all that self-effort, it just, whew, it left me exhausted. And part of why it left me exhausted is that when I went down this path, I thought it looked like living the Christian life. But in reality, the way that I was trying to live out my faith was not at all congruent with what the New Testament teaches about actually living the Christian life. It, it was based on religious behaviors instead. And, and my friends, it is possible for any of us to revert to religious-looking behaviors, um, and when we do that, we actually miss the life that Jesus actually offers us. And when we slide into that whole religious striving, when we do that, and most of us have done that, um, the truth is that we're practicing our Christianity with the same religious fervor that people of other religions practice their faith. But we end up with the same empty result. And that is because there is no life apart from Jesus. Not even in the so-called Christian religion. Like, there's no life when we practice this thing like a religion and we strive. Because the one thing that Christianity, the one thing Christianity has to offer, that the world can't get any place else, is grace. See, every other religion, it's based on what you do. It's based on your performance, on you keeping the particular codes or rules in order to stay in that particular God's favor. But in Christianity, remember, we are in a relationship with Jesus. I mean, think about when we invite someone to follow Jesus to become a Christian. We rightly tell them, hey, this is not about a religion. It's not about following a bunch of rules. This is about a relationship with God, with, with Jesus. Right? I mean, that's what we tell people, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And that is true. But sadly, if we're honest, then after we tell someone that, or they learn that, far too often, like, we, the church, don't always know what to do with people once they accept Christ. And so I think what often happens is the very thing that um, we do to them is likely what was done to us. We engage new Christians in a system of religious rule-keeping um, rule keeping and, and, and duties. We say, hey, okay, well, now read your Bible. Uh, pray more. Tithe. Serve at church. Serve overseas. Give more. Take a theology class. T take a course on studying the Bible with strict rules and lots of pressure and demands. Oh, oh yeah, and stop sinning so much. <sighs> now, how many of you know that the list of things I just ran off right there, they're 
those are all good things, well, for the most part. Like, I'm not a fan, personally, of the uh, high-pressure stuff. I don't think that's healthy or good. But, but, but all those other things, like, those are all important things that followers of Jesus want to be engaged in. But far too often, we do that stuff and we forget the point. And the point is having a relationship with God. And when we forget the point, we start to think that those other things are the point. We think that prayer, reading more, learning more, studying more, we think that is the point. And oh, it, it just sends people down a path where they miss the point, where we miss the life of Jesus. We miss out on the grace of God. Um, and, and, you know, oftentimes, even if somebody doesn't get pointed in that direction after they become a Christian, maybe that didn't happen to you, but it's real easy for a different trap, a very similar but different trap for, for us to fall into when we're trying to learn to live the Christian life. Uh, like, we get really grateful uh, when we meet Jesus that our sins have been forgiven and we're so grateful that we now think that our primary job as a Christian is to stop sinning so that we can be close to God. And so that becomes the main focus of the Christian life for us is to stop sinning. But that's not the point. We miss the point. So what is the point? Well, friends, we are saved by grace and after that, we get to learn to live in that same grace. We get to live in grace. We get to live out of who Christ says we now are. Well, for me, like I said, um, I was on this journey, this spiritual journey. It was um, my teenage and young adult years. I, I wanted to be sold out and radical. I wanted to be, you know, super Christian. So I was a um, ninth grader in high school and about a little more than midway through the year, I'd been a Christian, but I finally made a commitment that I was really going to be serious about my faith. And I had friends that were making some decisions that if I started going down that path, that would have been a not a good thing for me. And I knew that I was going to have to make a choice. And so I decided to follow Jesus. And I actually lost uh, all my friends um, that were in that school with me. Um, but But I was serious about this. And and there was no turning back for me. Um, a couple of years later in high school, uh, my commitment to enter church ministry came uh, to become a pastor one day. And, and I had quite um, a high school year. Those, those years um, that I was in high school, they were pretty remarkable. I mean, there were so many fun things, great things happened. Like I was, I was a leader in our youth ministry. Um, I was leading Bible studies on our high school campus right there at the school, before school and after school. I was, I was playing in a, a Christian band. Um, I was bringing other teens to faith in Christ. I was recognized as a leader and started to be trained that way by some of the leaders in our church. <clears throat> um, and, and not just that stuff. Like, I was learning a ton about the Bible. And so because I was learning a ton about the Bible and I figured I'm going into church ministry after high school then, I landed in Pharisee training school. I mean, I landed in Bible college. See, that's one of the places people actually did laugh, so you missed that one, but here we go. Um, but, but when I went to Bible college, and we had incredible teaching on the Bible and on Scripture and good theology, but there were all of these kind of peripheral things connected that, in my experience, was sort of the informal um, training because we learned at Bible college what to say. 
Uh, we learned what to do. We learned how to win friends and manipulate people. I mean, I mean, influence people. Win friends, influence people. Um, we learned how to look like a professional Christian, how to talk like a professional Christian. And we were given enough pressure to try to keep us on the straight and narrow so we could keep being a professional Christian. So, you know, it, it started out like when I got to college. At first I thought, wow, I'm going to be one amazing Christian. But it didn't take long before I started realizing, wow, this, huh, this isn't working like I thought it would. Everyone is faking, posing, but pretending to be perfect, including me. Like, how did I get here is what I wondered. I mean, because I meant well. I wanted to do this Christianity thing with excellence, but it felt like, like I could just never be good enough. You know, in, in, in spite of all the scripture and theology I had learned, the big problem is that I didn't actually know who I was as a Christian. I had no idea about who God declared me to be, no idea where I really stood with God. So I just want to take a minute here in the middle of the message and, and, and talk about that for a moment. Um, who, where do you really stand with God? Um, well, the Bible says for any of us who have trusted Jesus, here's the rock-solid truth of Scripture about where you now stand with God. This is the truth of the gospel, and I'm just going to give a few verses here. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 um, the truth out of this one is that you are righteous. Like, you're already righteous. You don't have to go and earn it. You are righteous. Uh, that scripture says, God made him, that's Jesus, who had had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you are righteous. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, we are the righteousness of God according to Scripture. That means you and I are righteous in God's eyes already. Not just, you know, okay, when we finally get our act together and we finally stop sinning, then we're righteous. No, 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 no. According to Scripture, you are righteous right now. Another one is that here's another powerful truth from scripture. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are his, the truest, deepest thing about you is that you have already been made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so you have been made new. You've been made new, friends. That's the truest thing. It's not like, oh, eventually when I get around to it or I impress or I do well enough long enough and I'm consistent enough, whew, then I'll be new. No, 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 no. According to scripture, you have already been made new. And hey, here's another great one. Christ lives in you. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The scripture right there, it says Christ lives in you. He lives in you. He stays in you. Not something you can earn. This is an act of grace. Christ lives in you. Ah, one more that I want to touch on. Romans 8.1 um, tells us 
uh, listen, we're accepted, not condemned. The scripture says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So it says right there, there's no condemnation. You are accepted through Christ Jesus. You are accepted, not condemned. And so right there, just a couple minutes we spent, that was just a few of the probably 100 plus verses that describe the new reality of a Christian's life. See, see, something miraculous happens when we make the decision to follow Jesus. When we say yes, when we receive him into our lives, stuff starts happening right away that we usually don't even know is happening. But it's still happening. Like, like your sins are forgiven, and you become a child of God. Uh, you, you get ransomed from the claim of the evil one. And you are given a new nature, a new identity. The DNA of the Father God becomes your DNA when you become a Christian. See, the old patterns in our life, because of that stuff and that new DNA, those things can be broken. Like, like new wiring fills my circuits as a new believer, as a believer in Christ. And, and sometimes we start to dare to believe that we're lovable just because God chooses to love us. And friends, again, it's the gospel. <laughs> and it's truly good news, which is what the gospel means. Good news, and it really is good news. But for some of us, after a while, sometimes um, young in our faith, maybe after years or more, sometimes those incredible truths begin to fade from our memory. Um, listen, those things are all still true. They're all still true. They're always true. But we forget or maybe we get discouraged because we don't instantly stop doing some of the sins that we had hoped we'd be free from. So we figure, wow, I'm a Christian, but I am not worthy of calling myself a follower of Jesus. I just can't pull this together. And so for me, as a young adult, um, studying to be a pastor, it's like one day I was walking along this path and I looked up, I saw a fork in the road of my Christian journey. And there was a sign um, labeled, Pleasing God, one way, and labeled trusting God, pointing the other. Now, John Lynch um, uses this parable of what it looks like in the life of most Christians when we get to this crucial part of our journey. And, you know, since we're just uh, studying his book as a church, I, I tried to get him to come and speak this week, you know, to kick off the series, but he wasn't available. And, and he was really cool. He said, hey, listen, Doug, you've been li living this message for a long, long time. This the message here that you're going to give. It's already in you, so you've got this. And Doug, you don't need to give me any credit or quote me. Like, you own this truth as well as any of us. And I'm appreciating that from him. Very kind. I appreciate his permission. But I still want to give him credit for for the metaphor and, and some of the other things I'm going to be saying in the next part of the message here. Um, and besides, in our Discover Groups on Wednesday nights, uh, you'll see a short version of him using this same metaphor in a video. And so you'd know where I got it anyway. And um, so there you go, John. Credit to you. <clears throat> All right, so here we go. Um, one day, I, I was I was walking along a path. I looked up, I saw a sign 
I'm on my Christian journey, and there it is, pleasing God, pointing one way, and another sign labeled trusting God, pointing the other. And I thought, well, this is weird. Like, <laughs> which one do I choose? So I look over at the one, trusting God. Well, I don't know, that's a little fluffy. That's uh, not too clear. Sounds actually a little too simple, and you know, I'm a leader. I'm, a, I'm an achiever. I'm, I'm going into ministry. I'm a... Uh, type A kind of guy, so that trusting God, ah, that's not going to work for me. So I look over at the other sign, pleasing God. Well, I think, yes, of course, that's what I've been looking for. I want to be close to God, so I need to make sure he is pleased with me. Wow, maybe I finally found the way to make it happen by, by pleasing God. And I stop and I, I wonder and I remember, like, wow, this has been so hard for me all along. All the time it's hard because I want to please God and I sin. I blow it big time. So then I try harder. I learn some new technique. I, I read the latest book. I look for, you know, seven keys to victory over sin. <sighs> but I can never make it stick. Eventually I mess it up. And at this point in my life, I am certain that God is getting sick of me. But I see this sign, I see this way, and I go, oh, I think I've finally found the way. Pleasing God, this has got to be it. I mean, you know, after all he's done for me, the very least I can do is to please him. So I set off on the path of, of pleasing God. And I'm shaded by towering oaks. And I look at this path, and I'm encouraged to see that this path is well-traveled. It is beat level with the feet of a million travelers. After a long while, I can finally see a giant building. This building is looming in the distance. <laughs> it looks like a convention center. I mean, as I get closer, I can see this huge banner across the front. And, and the banner reads, Striving hard to be all God wants me to be. Oh, wow, that resonated for me. I mean, hey, finally, something for me to do. Like, yeah, yeah, I strive. I strive after success in my career. I, I strive after attaining knowledge. I strive in my athletic hobbies. Why would it be any less with God? <laughs> so I draw closer and I notice when I get right up to it, there's a door. And above the doorknob, a small ornate plaque is bolted to the heavy wooden door. It reads, self-effort. Oh, yes, I say. <laughs> of course. God does his part and I do mine. It's about time somebody said that. I mean, that's in the Bible somewhere, right? <clears throat> well, by the way, the answer is no. <laughs> that ain't in the Bible, right? Um, but I see that self-effort handle. And I say yes, and I turn the handle, and I walk in. I'm stunned. I find this huge open room filled with thousands of people. I scan the group. I'm trying to take it all in. Oh, wow, I say this. This is it. These are the people who are serious about living for Jesus. Wow. There's a hostess. Um, she's standing by the door. I look over at her, and wow, yeah, every hair is perfectly in place. Her, her makeup is perfect, and she has perfect teeth as, well, as, she, as white as Joel Osteen's. I mean, whew. <laughs> she says to me, welcome to the room of good intentions. 
She says it a little too much like a radio announcer, but I'm so excited to finally be here that I don't think much of it. Thank you, I say. Oh, well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And as I shake her hand, I call out to the crowd, probably a little too loudly, and say, hey, 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 how's everybody doing? And the room goes silent. I mean, this room, it's full of beautiful People smiling people. Some of them wear elaborately crafted masks, which is great because, you know, I love masquerades, so this looks like my kind of place. One man steps forward. He looks like a winner. Welcome, he begins shaking my hand firmly. We're, um, we're fine. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for asking. Just fine, aren't we, everyone? And the people nod, right? He says, my my kids, yeah, they're doing great, and I'm, um, I'm about to close some very lucrative deals at work. Whew, more fit than I was in high school, I'm telling you. I'm doing just fine. Every, every, just fine. Everyone here is fine. Every, right? Everybody's, yep, we're fine. We're, fi- we're fine. <laughs> the hostess then looks and asks me how I'm doing. And I say, well, me? Um, well, <laughs> to be honest, I've been struggling with some stuff. That's partly why I'm here. I'm trying to figure it out, but I think that now, and shh, she interrupts me putting a flawlessly manicured index finger to her lips. She reaches behind a podium and pulls out a mask, handing it to me. She nods her head, indicating I should put it on. (laughs) I stare at it for just a moment, and others in the room are excitedly motioning for me to do so. So slowly I slide the mask over my face, and then I find myself answering as if from somewhere far away. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm great. I'm, uh, I'm doing fine. I'm fine. And everyone in the room smiles before returning to their conversations. Friends, this is the room of good intentions. The place is ornate. I mean, it's got cascading fountains ringed with beautifully upholstered sofas and chairs. Everything is white marble and gold leaf. It is perfect. I notice across the back wall, there is a huge embroidered banner, and it reads, Working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. And I see, well, there you go. (laughs) That's what I want, to fix my sin so God and I can be close again. And the people in this room, wow, like they're diligent, they're impressive achievers and CEOs and pastors of megachurches and TV evangelists and leaders working in nonprofits and so many good intended people fill this room. They've devoted themselves to God and now I had a chance to be one of them. Now, friends, I just want to take a quick time out here. In this metaphor, I know this category, the pleasing God category, it can be confusing. Um, After all, you know, pleasing God, that's not an evil desire. So here's what we mean by taking that path as opposed to the trusting God path. If I make my primary motive to please God, um, it's all about my performance. And so I quickly find myself on a religious treadmill that I cannot get off of. Eventually, I find myself thinking, what must I do to keep God pleased with me? How do I know when I've done enough? And I end up always second-guessing myself. Oh, am I, am I giving God my best? I mean, I, I better try harder. After all, God's standard is perfect holiness. Bill Tell says, 
whenever I make the underlying motive of my life to please God, I get trapped in a life of self-effort. Not only can I not get off the treadmill, I am chained to it day and night. I try to be good enough so God's pleased, but I end up trapped and living without the good news of the gospel. So, let's step back here and let's go back to the path here of pleasing God. We're living in the room of good intentions and I'm looking around this room and although this striving room of religious performers looks impressive and sincere, like full of diligence, I mean, there's full-hearted fervency, there's sold-out determination, there's a pursuit of excellence... And although I had thought for a long time when I was striving in this room, like, wow, yeah, this is it. I'm going to make him so happy. And one day soon, me and God will finally be close. <sighs> but, but, but weeks turn into months. And I start to notice how tired the people truly are in this room of good intentions. I notice that sometimes when they think nobody else is looking... Uh, Someone will let their mask slip off, and when you see it, you can see a deep, lonely pain on their face. And honestly, I notice that I'm hiding too. I have this nagging anxiety that if I don't behave, if I don't control my sin enough, I'll be on the outs with everyone in this room and with God. But despite all my striving and sincerity... I can't achieve. I can't achieve perfection. I feel like I've never done enough. It feels like I'm making every effort to please a God who never seems pleased enough. My life is being driven by the question, what must I do to keep God pleased with me? And here's what we learn. When we realize our striving and self-effort are a dead end, we learn that we can never resolve our sin by working on it. Oh, I mean, you know, we might change behaviors for a while, but, but when we strive to sin less, we don't. And this causes us to lose hope. It keeps us immature because we never can grow. See, that self-effort theology, it's breaking our hearts, even though it's let us down a thousand times. But we do it, keep, you know, desperately hoping, you know, all oh, this time, this time I'm going to be able to control or stop my bad habits. You know, we think that we're going to be able to conquer our sins by having enough sincerity and willpower. But if we get sick of pretending, if we get sick of living the lie of, you know, fake it till you make it, we finally have to admit, I can no longer even breathe in here. See, this, this, this pathway of pleasing God... It's more about my good performance, my ability to get it right. It's based on my self-effort, my striving. You know, lots of Christians who live their life in the room of good intentions, they strive hard to master all kinds of principles about God and who God is. I mean, they might even have an ironclad theological system, and by the way, they usually do. But if they get honest they'd have to admit they're practicing a religion. And really, they're just trying to check the boxes to fit in or look good or or impress the particular group that they want to belong to. But sometimes when we've lived in that place, we remember. Like our hearts finally sneak up on us and remind us of why we got into this Christianity thing in the first place. It was because we wanted a relationship with God. 
It wasn't about practicing a religion, about self-effort and performing. And then we discover, oh no, here I am, I'm practicing a religion. And we know that religious duty kills. It's exhausting. It never leads to life. So in my journey, in my story, after a while, I leave the room of good intentions. I'm disappointed and so very tired. Like, I know Jesus is real, but I see that I'm a failure. And I'm tired of faking it. I'm tired of being around perfect people who are faking it too, but they're mostly hiding it behind their religious-looking perfect people mask. So I wander back down the path to the fork in the road again, and I say that other path. I see it right there marked, trusting God. (laughs) Well, that honestly still sounds strange, but after exhausting myself on the religious treadmill of pleasing God, I figure I've got nothing to lose, so I take the path. After a long while, I see a giant building looming in the distance there, too. And as I approach this building, I can see there's a banner on that building, just like the other one, except this one reads, Living Out of Who God Says I Am. Hmm. Huh. Well, I'm not for sure what all that means, but again, I figure, what do I have to lose? (laughs) As I get to the building, I see it has a huge door, and and this one also has a plaque over the doorknob, but this one doesn't read self-effort. This plaque over the doorknob reads humility. Well, after all my failures, I have been humbled for sure, and through my tears I cry out to God. God, I just... uh, I fought so hard to impress you, and none of it did, and now I'm just... I'm, I'm weary. I'm empty and alone. I'm tired of performing. I'm I'm tired of pretending. I'm tired of thinking that I can please you by any amount of self-effort. So help me, God. Please help. Finally, I, I take a deep breath. I try to pull myself together. Figure, hey, if this is anything like the last time, I want to make a good first impression, and I don't want to look like a fool again. So I open the door, and I notice this room. It's, it's much warmer. It's more comfortable and inviting in its tasteful simplicity. Instead of sofas draped in shimmering silk, there are overstuffed couches and chairs, places for people to connect and and listen to one another. Another hostess approaches. Like the hostess in the room of good intentions, she is lovely, but her beauty is natural. It comes from within. She smiles, and in a voice as stunning as anything I've ever heard, she says, Hello. Welcome to the room of grace. After a moment, she asks, How are you? (laughs) Oh, why, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this one, right? The last time I answered this one, I was handed a mask, so I know the right answer. I say, yeah, um, uh, fine. I'm I'm doing fine. Well, the whole room is watching me now, and I see eyebrows tilted in skepticism. My heart sinks. I turn toward the room. All eyes on me. And I decide, fine, I'm, I'm going to yell out so everyone can hear me. All right. Hey, everybody. Listen up. I am not 
fine. I am not fine at all. I haven't, I haven't been fine in a long time. I'm tired, confused, angry, and afraid. I feel guilty and lonely, and that makes me even angrier. I'm sad most of the time, and I pretend that I'm not. My life is not working at the moment. I'm so far behind. I'm almost completely frozen, and if any of you real Christians knew half my daily thoughts and struggles, you'd kick me out of your little Christian club. So, again, I'm doing not fine. Thanks for asking. I think I'll go now. My face is hot as I turn toward the door before I have a chance to break down again, and as I grab for the knob, a voice booms from the back of the room. And a man says, That's it! That's all you got! I'll take your anger, guilt, and dark thoughts and raise you a compulsive sin and chronic lower back pain. Oh, and did I mention that I'm in debt up to my ears? I also wouldn't know a classical music from a show tune if it jumped up and bit me. Sorry, Doug, but your little list ain't that bad. The hostess looks and says with a wink, I think he means, you've come to the right place and you are welcome here. The room erupts in warm, genuine laughter and I smile and let my guard down. As I am shown around the room of grace, I encounter real people. Folks that, that others would describe as imperfect people. They are authentic and vulnerable and loving. They embrace the struggle of their life's journey without cliches, formulas, and easy answers. And no one is wearing one of those fake perfect people masks. Eventually, I notice a banner in this room, too. But this banner reads, Standing with God, my sin in front of us, working on it together. And I stop and say, wait, 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 wait. I thought my sin separated me from God. Isn't he holy and can't stand to be around me? And, and so when I sin, obviously he can't stand to be around me. But as I think more deeply about the life and person of Jesus and the people he got close to, Suddenly, that lie is blown to pieces. See, suddenly I get it. I, I, I go, wow, 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 wait a minute. Before, I always thought God was, you know, over there on the other side of my sin with all my garbage that came between us. But, but now I realize he's right here. He's right with me. That, that, that there is truly nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 is true. Nothing can separate me. Not even my brokenness, struggle, and sin. I mean, God doesn't move away from me. He doesn't put distance between us when I sin. No, no, no. Like the father in the story of the prodigal son, God the Father runs to us. Jesus runs to us. And I get this picture of him putting his hands on my shoulders, staring into my eyes. No disappointment, no condemnation, only delight, only love. He pulls me in to embrace me. And at first I feel unworthy. I want to push away and cry out, No, 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 Jesus, no, I, don't, I don't deserve this. But I receive his embrace. I hear him say, Doug, I know all about your stuff. I've seen it all, and I'm right here. I've got you. I finally see that he does love me unconditionally, that nothing can separate me from his love. 
But but there's still that question. I, I, even though I've received his love and grace, that question remains about my sin obstacle. I mean, I've held on to that lie so long, it's hard to let it go. It's, in fact, it's going to take years of reminders, years of truth for me to fully release the lie about my sin separating me from God. But in my story, the first time that that truth made sense to me, here's the image I could picture. There was this big pile of sin. And instead of my sin separating me from Jesus, he was standing right next to me with his arm around me. It, it was John Lynch who, who described that picture that vividly came into my mind and heart. And, and um, Lynch, he imagines Jesus, right? He imagines Jesus looking at the pile. And with a straight face, Jesus says, you know, to me, huh? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Ooh, Doug, that is a lot of sin. Oh, wow, a whole lot of sin. <clears throat> Doug, don't you ever sleep? <laughs> then Jesus starts laughing, and I start laughing, and it's it's funnier when John says it. <laughs> but it's a beautiful picture. And I remember when this truth broke the lie in my life, like I did. I saw Jesus. He's standing next to me with his armor on my shoulder, and then he just kind of motioned out to that mound of filth that was in front of us. Now, I'd done plenty of repentance exercises in my life, you know, examining all the pain, regret, and damage in my life, and, and that can be a helpful, good thing, right? Um, so for me, seeing that massive pile laid out in front of me, that wasn't real hard to imagine. Um, it was full of all the things I did that caused shame, all the ways I postured and pretended and posed so that I could impress people with my mask, uh, all the things in my life that have broken my heart and his... But this time, I could see the truth, that in spite of my brokenness and unresolved sin, Jesus would never leave or forsake me. He stood there with me. He stands here with me, his arm around me. And the truth is, he's been holding me all along never allowing my sin to separate us. He loves me. He loves you, even while we're struggling. Friends, he's not waiting until we get it cleaned up enough. He's there. And I finally realized that for me to ever get free of my hang-ups, I was going to have to first trust that he loves me no matter what. And so with Jesus' arm around me, I could hear him say, Doug, we will deal with this stuff when you're ready, when it's time, and I've got your back. See, friends, this is the room of grace. <laughs> the room of grace, it's a place where we trade in tired, worn-out religion and exchange it for the relationship with the God that we have always longed for. In the room of grace, we begin living out of who God declares us to be, a saint, a child of God. We're not some saved sinner who'd better buck up and get it right. No, 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 no. According to the New Testament, your identity, the truest thing about you and me is that we are no longer wretched sinners. According to the New Testament, we are seen as saints, not sinners. I mean, imagine how great this is. I mean, just to think of it that way, like, wow, since I'm a saint, instead of me having to strive and muster up enough self-effort to resolve my sin, wow, now I can trust God with my sin. I mean, God lives inside of me. 
So now I trust that he will empower me from within. It's not about my self-effort. I can rely on him. And in his time, he will gradually shape and transform me, and I want to cooperate and partner with that. So friends, my question for us as we close today is this. Will we believe it? Will we believe that the gospel is true? That you and I have already been changed. That we've been given a new identity. And that our sin no longer separates us from God. People of hope, living in the room of grace, it's a marvelous way to live. It's, it means trusting that we really are accepted, that we really are delighted in, even on our worst day we're accepted. It means that there is nothing you can do to make God love you more than he already does. And there's nothing that you can do that could make him love you less. We are never loved more or loved less, no matter what. And it's in this room of grace where we actually do grow. (laughs) We thought we were going to manage our sins so we could grow, but no, no, no. It's in the room of grace that we grow. We actually there can mature into the person God has, has designed us to be. See, it's only in the room of grace where we actually begin to get free of our sin, of our shame, and our brokenness. And you know, Hope Covenant, this is the kind of church God has called us to be. Like, we've already got it built into our DNA. We are a room of grace. So what do you say we ask God to make it even more true of us, that he would deepen us in that this year? And the invitation for us is this, friends. Are you living in the room of good intentions? Are you striving? Are you weary? Are you tired of pretending or wearing a mask? In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come, all who are weary. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to the room of grace where imperfect people belong and begin to discover the rock-solid truth and reality of God's love and grace for them, for us. Cease your striving, your performing, your attempts to, to try to assuage your shame by proving how serious you are about God. Like, oh, no, 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 he already sees, right? He knows, and he invites you into his grace, into his acceptance, into his delight, My friend, he is already pleased with you. Like when you trust him, that's enough. That's faith. Trust him, that's faith. So he's pleased. And he's pleased because you have stepped into his love, his goodness. And most of all, he's pleased that you are his beloved son or daughter. My friend, never forget, you are loved. So welcome to the Room of Grace.